text here at the beginning uh, of our time together to just draw your attention to the mustard seed. Uh, if you should have gotten one of those as you came in. Uh, over on the left-hand side of the front side of that page, you'll see where we are financially at this point in the year. Um, it's normal for spending to be a little bit higher than budget at this time of the year because we have some expenses that are front-loaded, like snow removal, of which there was a lot this year. Uh, and uh, we have 12 months of budget and uh, a couple of months at the beginning of the year where we spend the bulk of that money. Uh, so it's normal for our spending to be a little higher than budget, but uh, we're running about $13,000 behind giving-wise versus budget. So what that equates to is about $3,000 a month that we're running behind a little bit. So um, all the ways that you are benefiting from Chili, Chili Bible are something I want you to just bear in mind uh, as you think about that. Um, and how many of you are growing in your walk with Christ. Uh, we are continuing to reach people with the gospel week by week, and day by day. I'm happy to report that um, with all the ministries that we are reaching out into our community with things like Awana and Salt and Light and Men's Fraternity and MOP, and as individuals, we've got about 115 to this point in the year people we have shared the gospel with, which I think is a tremendous praise. So I want to celebrate that, okay? Um, we've had some of them come to faith in Christ and some that we're still working on, all right? But um, consider your finances. Ask yourself how you might honor the Lord Jesus with them uh, and give sacrificially to the expansion of his kingdom and the spread of the gospel, okay? Um, may the Lord bless you as you consider these things. Now, uh, those of you who know me well know that uh, w one of the men I love and respect most in all the world is my dad. And when I was growing up, I wanted to be like him and talk like him and walk like him and do all the things that he did. Uh, in many ways, that's still true. You know, he's still one of my heroes. And one of the things about my dad that is true is that he really enjoys movies. And one of the movies that he loves is the 1963 film, The Great Escape. Have you seen it? It's a great movie. You've got this scene in there. You've got several scenes in there with Steve McQueen that are memorable. It's, about the, it's a movie about the real-life event of the escape, mass escape, of allied prisoners of war uh, in Nazi Germany. About 200 of them were planning to make their escape from a prison camp called Stalag Luft III. And about 600 guys were involved in the escape effort in digging three tunnels, they called Tom, Dick, and Harry, uh, that they had going simultaneously. They took boards out of their beds and shored up these tunnels. And uh, on one night, 76 men all escaped from this prison camp. And this movie is about that escape, about how they all got out. You know, everybody, including Steve McQueen, the Cooler King with his baseball, and a whole bunch of other guys, right? And it's a great movie. You watch, you watch these men and their ingenuity and their bravery in what they're about to do, knowing that if they're not careful, they'll be shot for what they're doing. And it's a fun movie to watch, but it 
it ends, even though it's, there's some great scenes in it, you know, I love that scene of Steve McQueen going across the countryside on a motorcycle and crashing into the barbed wire at the end, and it's, it's a great movie, a lot of fun. But it's a tragic movie. Because what you find out is of 76 guys, 73 of them are recaptured. Sorry, spoiler alert, I should have told you. But 73 of them are recaptured. 50 of them are shot upon being recaptured. Because Hitler said, we're going to make an example of these guys. And so it's a, it's a great movie, but it's a tragic movie. And you, it's called The Great Escape because of the ingenuity and the bravery of these men, not because so many of them actually permanently got out. But I've called this message this morning The Great Escape because it wasn't just 76 people. It was tens of thousands who made their way out of Egypt by the power of God. And they were not recaptured. They permanently got out. And God is brilliant. And God is ingenious. And, and the people are not brave. They're terrified. <laughs> but God fights for them. And he protects them. And you're going to, we're going to see this morning the Red Sea crossing, the greatest mass escape in the history of humanity. So if you got your Bible, I want you to open it up to uh, Exodus chapter 13, there at the end, verse 17. We're going to look uh, at the whole story uh, the, there at the end of 13 all the way through 14 as quickly as we can. The Word of God says this, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, Let the people, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, the story of Exodus really happened. One of the, it's one of the events that lots of times critics like to, uh, like to um, cast aspersions and doubt on, but the events of the Exodus really happened. That's one of the reasons that they give these place names and describe the route. Now, there's, di there's discussion and debate about where these place names places actually are, but they're given to indicate to us this is not a once-upon-a-time once bedtime story in an imaginary land. This is a historical fact. This is a, something which really occurred. And nevertheless, it is a story with a great deal to teach us about 
how God deals with people, how he dealt with them then, how he still deals with them today. And so I want to highlight three things I want you to notice here in this part of the text. First, notice that God is present with his people from the moment of their redemption all the way through. It says that, that God led them, that God appeared to them, that God was present with them in the, in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire from the very first step that they took as his redeemed people. God is present with them, and he's present in this marvelous, visible way. If you've ever been out in the desert, which I've never been to the Middle East, I'm going to get to send Karen over to see Wendy Murdy in this summer, but I've never been to the desert in the Middle East. I have been into the, in the desert in the southwest in the United States, and what I can tell you is, is that it is hot. I know that's profound and surprising, but it is hot, okay? In the daytime, it is hot. It is forever more hot. And what you really want in the desert, in the midst of all that sand and hot, is you want some shade. So what does God provide? A cloud. A low-hanging cloud. They go over the top of the whole mass of them. So not only does they know that he is with them, but also he provides shade. So God is present and he provides. And what do you want at night? You want warmth, and you want to be able to see. This is not an era, you know, when you can plug stuff into a socket somewhere and have light. It's And if you're out in the wilderness, guess what it is? It is black, dark, and you can't see anything. There's not any light. Unless the moon is shining, you don't have any light at all. And so God provides his people with light. And he, they, have, they have shade in the, in the daytime, they got light at night, they got God's presence with them, and they're in good shape. And some of you probably are thinking about that and going, that would be so cool. Wouldn't it be neat to have God visibly present with you that way? Just kind of everywhere you went, you know, as you're following God along, you know, there, there's, oh, okay, well, where's the Lord? Well, let's look for the cloud, or let's look for the fire. There he is. Uh, but you know what is interesting? In Acts chapter 2, something really fascinating happened. You remember? Pentecost happened. And when the Spirit of God comes and is present with his people, do you remember how he appears? As tongues of fire, pillars, if you will, of fire, above each person who is a believer in Jesus Christ. And you have, as an individual believer in Jesus Christ, the presence of the living God with you, just as they did. In fact, better than they did, because the Spirit of God does not dwell off somewhere in a cloud you can see, but within you, leading you and guiding you just as surely as the, as the cloud and the fire did in those days. Last thing I want you to see... Um, a couple other things I want you to see here, that God has a plan. God has a plan. You know, we, we joke at my house that Karen loves you, and she has a wonderful plan for your life. 
right? <laughs> right? Uh, but, uh, and it's true, okay? We'll wake up on Saturday, and she'll look at me a lot of days, and she'll say, sweetheart, what do you want to do today? And I will look back at her, and I'll say, sweetheart, you're looking at it. <laughs> I want to lay here and rest and not do very much, you know. What did you have in mind? And she'll give me the list, right? Uh, right. And, and because she's been awake for longer than me, and she's had time for her synapses to fire, right? But God is just like that. He has a plan for his people. He has a plan for the Israelites. And he, his plan is a good plan. It's a plan not like they expected. It's not the most direct route. He doesn't take them up along the edge of the Mediterranean Sea right up into Canaan. Why not? Well, because though they, the text says here they go out dressed for battle, they, this is not an army. They've got all the equipment, but they are not ready for warfare. And so God says, you know what, I don't want these people to encounter too much op- opposition. So instead of going up to the north, right up to the edge of Canaan and encountering the Philistines, he says, I'm going to take them down into the desert, into the Sinai Peninsula. And there's this wide plain between the mountains of Sinai and the ocean, and they can all walk along that, and it's real easy walking. And so they are, they're doing that. He has a plan. And he is taking them the long way around, up to Canaan, up to the promised land. But he is taking them there nonetheless. He has a plan for them. And also, notice that God is faithful. What do they take with them? They take with them all their livestock. That's important. They take every Israelite. That's important. They also take something else, the bones of Joseph. Because Joseph believed what God had told Abraham. God told Abraham before before any of these events happened, hundreds of years before uh, the exodus took place, God told Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have many descendants, and they're going to go down to Egypt, and they're going to be slaves there 400 and some years. And then I'm going to lead them out. And Joseph, his grandson or actually great-grandson, believed that. And he said, you know what, boys? I'm about to die. And when I die, though I've lived in Egypt most of my life, do not bury me here. Do not bury me here. I am not an Egyptian. Do not bury me here. When God comes, as he told Abraham, our great-grandfather, that he would, When God comes and delivers us out of here, you take me with you. You take my bones and you bury them back at Shechem where you're supposed to. Because that is the promised land. And that is where I want to be buried. And so they do. And was God faithful to keep his promise? Yes, he was. Just like he told Abraham, God comes and he delivers. And they take Joseph's bones. Now God also has a brilliant strategy, and I want you to see it here, chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall camp in facing it, 
by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And when the king of Egypt was told was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Hiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, I did some research on these things, and it seems that the route of the Exodus takes them from the northern part of Egypt across the, the, the uh, Straits of Suez, what are now there now as the Suez Canal, uh, down into the, into the Sinai Peninsula, and they're going up the other side of that little island or that little peninsula that's right there, uh, and there's a little island off to the east, and I think that is probably um, what is here in the text called Baal Zephon, which is a high place for the worship of Baal, a Canaanite fertility god. And uh, there's this little spot that looks out on that mountain down there at the ends, at the end of that that uh, section of the Gulf of Aqaba, uh, called the Straits of Tiran, and this mountain is today called Mount Tiran. Uh, and that's the place. And notice something interesting there in the text. God tells them, turn back and camp here. In other words, uh, they're on their way past this place. They're getting away. They're getting out of Egypt. They're passing. as clo- They're headed toward Midian. They're on their way out. And all of a sudden, God says, hey, by the way, turn around. I know the Egyptians are pursuing you. So I want you to turn around and get closer to them. Excuse me, you want me to do what? <laughs> yes, get closer to the invading, or to the attacking, advancing Egyptian army. Uh, okay. So they do. They turn around and they camp at this little spot right across the Straits of Tiran there at the, at the south end of the Gulf of Aqaba. And... Pharaoh has gathered all of the crack troops. He's got 600, says, chosen chariots. In other words, he's got his elite special forces guys that he's picked out to head the column, and then the rest of the army and all of the cavalry, and they're going to ride down the Israelites. 
and he's thinking, we'll either take them, retake them as slaves or we'll kill them all. But one way or the other, we're not letting them leave peacefully from Egypt. And God says, now Moses, if you turn back around and camp back in a different spot, Pharaoh's going to think that you guys have gotten lost. And they're just wandering around in circles in the desert. And that's exactly what Pharaoh does think. Well, they've gotten caught in the wilderness, so I'm going to ride them down. And the Israelites see this giant dust cloud coming. All these troops, all these horses, all these chariots. And they start to complain. And they cry out to God. They cry out first to God, and they cry out not so much in faith, trusting in God, but in fear. That, uh, hey, the army's coming. The army's coming, and then they turn to Moses, and they ask him this bitter, ironic question. Moses, is it because there weren't any tombs, there weren't any graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die in the wilderness? Now, why is that bitter and ironic? Well, what's, what's the most famous landmark in the nation of Egypt to this day? The pyramids. What are the pyramids? Tombs. Okay. In fact, all of Egyptian religion is centered around death and burial and the afterlife and making sure you've got all this elaborate burial preparation, right? You can still see the mummies today. You go to the Field Museum and you can see dead people in the building, all right? Preserved like the mounted elephants and whatever else. They've got dead people, dead Egyptians, because the whole religion, the whole culture is centered around death. And so, yes, obviously there are graves in Egypt. You like saying, is there water in, is it because there was no water in Lake Michigan that you brought us to this pond to drown us? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it, there are obviously graves in Egypt. And, they, and they're saying, look, we could have died there. We could have happily remain slaves versus be slaughtered in the desert. And if those are the only two choices, being alive as a slave is better than being dead in the sand. And Moses, what does he say? He says, stand back and see God's deliverance. And God is going to deliver. So let's read that. Moses, The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And a pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night long. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them, 
into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, and of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Here's God's response to Moses. Moses starts praying, Lord, now would be a good time for the plan to come together. Because we've got the Egyptian army behind us, we've got the ocean in front of us, and we've got mountains over here. Uh, we're kind of stuck. We need, we, need a, we need the plan to come together. And, and God says to Moses, look, there's a time to pray and a time to move. Now is the time to move. So get moving. Go forward. And he's like, what? Forward is into the ocean. He's, and God says, I know. Stretch out your hand over the ocean and the water will part. Okay, so he takes the staff, he goes, and the water goes, and opens up a hallway down through the bottom of the Red Sea. And there's water here, and water here, and people walking through on the, on the floor of the ocean. And in the meantime, it says that God's presence in the angel, with the angel of the Lord and the pillar of fire came between the Egyptian army and the escaping Israelites. In other words, Moses, you go forward. I got your back. And he covers their retreat. And he has this wall of fire. And the angel of the Lord protects all his people. And then in the morning, what's really interesting, this is another part of God's brilliant strategy. This is amazing. In the morning, what comes up? The sun, right, out of the east. And the Egypt, who do the Egyptians worship as their chief god? The sun. Oh, this is, this is better. Okay. They believe that the power of the sun god, Ra, is greatest early in the morning. So God, as the sun is coming up, causes the cloud to lift off. And they think, oh, their God is weak in the sunshine. <laughs> Our God is getting stronger, so now we can chase them down and get them. And look, Ra has left the ocean open for us to go get them. So they go in after them. And what happens after that? Moses, stretch out your hand over the water. And all the ocean closes back in over Pharaoh's army. All his chariots. All his horses, 
all his cavalrymen all drowned on the floor of the Red Sea. And all the people of Israel stand on the seashore watching their bodies wash up. And God delivered. God protected. And God provided for his people. God's people were saved. God's enemies were defeated. And God was glorified. God will always fulfill his grand purpose of saving his people. Always. And he will do so in spite of obstacles, in spite of unbelief, and in spite of opposition. Always. God is going to fulfill his purpose. You, know, you want to know what God's will is? I'll give it to you in a sentence. God's will is to save his people for his glory. That's it. All of human history is designed and planned and orchestrated by God to produce that result, the saving of, of a people for the glory of God. God has chosen who would be saved, and he saves them that he might be glorified. If you look at chapter 14 again. I want to show you two places. Verse 4, verse 17. God tells Moses, look, the whole point of these events and Israel's deliverance is God's glory. Look at it. He says, look here, verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians will know that I'm the Lord. Verse 17. There you go. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they will go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians will know, verse 18, that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. In other words, God is wanting to be truly known as God. And people sometimes say, well, if only God would intervene in human history, so that we could all see his activity and know who he is. And the reality is, is that God does that over and over and over and over again. And he tells us about it, about a number of these occasions in the scriptures. So that we can know that he is a God who wants to be known, who, a God who does reveal himself, a God who is interested in declaring who he is to us. And why does God want to be glorified? Is it simply because he's just arrogant like that and likes to have people, you know, talking about him? No. It's because he knows that salvation comes through revelation. That as God makes himself known that his people are saved. And so he wants he wants people to talk about who he is so that more people can come to faith in him and be saved from sin and death and hell. And so his purpose in getting glory over Pharaoh is not simply so that he can obliterate Pharaoh's army. His purpose is the salvation of a people that the Egyptians even, not just the Israelites, that the Egyptians would know who God really is. 
And indeed, as we see in verse 31, that's what happened. The people who saw these events worshipped God. They saw the great power the Lord used, and they feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They go from unbelief to belief in the space of a few hours as they walk across the Red Sea and saw God fight for them against the Egyptians. They went from unbelief, from thinking that God had brought them out here simply to murder them in the desert, to realizing that God brought them out there to save them and to be glorified through them and in them. Well, what does all this mean for us? Four things. It means, first of all, that no circumstances are too big for God to overcome. No circumstances are too big for God to overcome. Heard the expression between the devil and the deep blue sea? That is where the Israelites find themselves. There, they've got the ocean, the mountains, the desert, and the leading army of the ancient world closing in. No circumstances are too big for God to overcome. You may feel like the world is closing in on you. Maybe you have a rebellious child. Maybe you have a financial catastrophe. Maybe you have a a marital collapse. Maybe you have an awful disease. Maybe you have a natural disaster strike and take everything that was precious to you. No circumstance is beyond God's power. No circumstance is beyond God's power. He can and he will intervene to bring himself glory, and you only need to trust and wait for God to deliver. Number two, no doubts are too significant for God to refute. The Israelites constantly doubt God's ability. In fact, just a a couple chapters later, we're going to see, we're dying of thirst. Surely God brought us out here to die. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The reality of it is, is that they are constantly doubting his ability, his love, his provision for them. Nothing ever happened to them except they wanted to go back to Egypt and be a slave. And some of us, when we encounter difficulty, are just like them. We have some bad thing happen, and we want to go back immediately to our old life because things right now seem really difficult. But here's the deal. If you trust God, you will see him be glorified in your life. And you will see him step into history for you in a way that refutes your objections and answers your doubt. Number three, no opposition is too strong for God to vanquish. We don't have enemies, usually, like Pharaoh oppressing us right now. Our battle as Christians is not normally against enemies we can see. But even if the battle becomes visible, and even if the cavalry is coming, not to fight for us but against us, God is bigger, and he is stronger. I love that portion of the prophets where God says, do you have an arm like mine? I love that. I love that image. You know, it's like guys sometimes in high school, you know, they'll sit around and they'll flex for each other, you know, and they'll compare muscles, you know, (laughs) and they'll be like, yeah, I think 
I think I can almost see a, a definition there. Maybe there might be a line between the two muscles, you know. Mine's bigger than yours. And God, in a sense, steps into that competition and says, do you have an arm like mine? Can you step in where I, in a way that I can step in? No. No opposition is too strong for God. There is no enemy he cannot defeat. In fact, what's the worst enemy that human beings face? Death. And the Bible tells us the last enemy to be defeated is death, and Jesus Christ has already defeated it. There is no opposition too strong for God to vanquish. And number four, God will be glorified in us. God does not simply save us because he is a nice God and we are, you know, desperate, dying people. He doesn't do that. Or not simply for that reason. He saves us for his glory. His desire is to see his character produced in us. And to be glorified in us. And, uh, and for his presence in us to produce a greater demonstration of his glory than the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire and the angel of the Lord walking along with the people. Because we have a living, indwelling, empowering, enabling, gift-giving presence of the Holy Spirit within us. And God intends for that Holy Spirit presence within us to produce glory for him, that he might be glorified in you and I, as the scriptures promise us, is not only going to happen now, but is going to happen in eternity. It means that God is going to do this. Just as he told Moses, I will get glory over Pharaoh. He has told us, I will get glory in your life and in mine. And I think that's tremendously encouraging. Because a lot of days I wake up, i got to be honest with you, I feel like I am spiritually still underdeveloped, still stunted in my growth. I don't know if I drank too much coffee or what. But I feel like I still have so far to go. And this, prom this passage tells me, and the Bible tells me, God will get glory in my life. And he will get glory in your life. As we trust and as we follow him, God will be glorified. Amen? All right. Let's pray and let's take communion together. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a great God and Savior, as well as a good God who loves us. Father, we thank you that we are called by your purposes into relationship with you, that you might have glory in us and through us. And Father, we pray that as we celebrate you and as we worship you this morning, that you would indeed be glorified by us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if I could have those who are going to help us to serve communion come forward.
Paul, Paul describes the communion uh, ordinance this way. He says in chapter 11, beginning in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, the communion service,